the show this week, we took some time to celebrate International Women's Day with a couple of fantastic guests that we rely on on this show. That's Shazma Mathani and Kelly Keene. In the worlds of healthcare and finance, we'll hear from them. We'll also tell you about aquamation. Think cremation, but involving water instead of fire. We'll explain it for you. And exploring the dark side of the moon, Canada could be building the very rover that does that. Okay, it's International Women's Day, and we've invited some of the women that we have relied on and value and uh, really appreciate being part of this show. And right at the top of that list would have to be our next guest. It's Dr. Shazma Mathani, who we have had on the show many times, an emergency room physician at the Royal Alec and the Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton. Uh, Dr. Mathani, thank you, as always, for being here. I appreciate your time. Yes, an honor to be here today. You have been uh, just an invaluable resource to us on this show for a few years now. But I wonder, in the, in the journey of getting to where you are now, and I know your role and your your profile continues to grow through your work, um, but you must have had to overcome some gender-based stuff along the way, right? It couldn't have been easy. There must have been challenges. Oh, and yeah, and there's, there still are, right? Um, I guess it's hard to pinpoint one thing in particular, but I can tell you just in my experience in in the workplace and the way that leadership structures work right now. I mean, as you mentioned, I've been uh, growing in my career beyond just clinical medicine, yeah. and that means that I'm in spaces, um, in leadership spaces, um, around boardroom tables, um, in, in meetings with leaders. And I would say the thing that kind of stands out to me the most is still having to be careful even just with how I say things um, because of the, of how I might be perceived um, by usually men around the room. Um, there's there's still that stereotype of um, using adjectives like abrasive or... Shrill. Uh, shrill, histrionic, emotional. I yes, hate that yeah. word, right? Emotional. <laughs> and so, and these are, these are words that never get used um, with men who no. are speaking passionately about a topic, right? And so I would say that that's still something that I face um, quite commonly. Uh, when I am, because I mean, you know, you've talked to me quite a bit over the years, as you said, and, mm. and I am passionate about topics. I'm, I'm passionate about health topics. I'm, ha- I'm passionate about, um, you know, topics related to equity and privilege. And, and these are things that are really important to me. And um, sometimes I do, you know, um, get worked up about them. And I think that that's important. It is. Um, that's why we but, have you on the air. I mean, because it's because of the passion. I mean, that's the whole reason for it. Yeah, thank you. And and it's but some it's still a challenge for for women like myself who who are putting themselves out there um that get that that pushback still and and those labels that are placed on us because it honestly it then um prevents women from entering that space because because people aren't making space for them and being um inclusive. Yeah, I mean you're you're young uh, relative compared to me at least and um in terms of can you talk about change? Like, there's been so much focus on this in so many, especially when you're talking about big institutional organizations like the ones that you work with. There's a focus on it. We know that. Has it changed? Is it getting better? Is it improving at all, Dr. Mathani? Absolutely, it is. Okay. I mean, some of my um, biggest mentors in in clinical medicine and in in leadership and advocacy are are amazing women that are you know five ten years ahead of me in their careers and and once we start getting more women into those positions it it allows it it you know it shows role modeling right that women a few years younger than them essentially can see like they can see themselves in that position where um uh you know those barriers essentially get broken down mm-hmm. because 
because you can you you can see yourself in those positions. Um, and I and I am so lucky to be able to have these uh, these women mentors who are now in leadership positions who are making those changes from the inside slowly but surely um, in order to continue to make that space and and to show the the people around them that um, you know women do belong in these spaces and and we have very um, constructive and intelligent and um, innovative ideas to share to try to continue to improve the system around us. But you're giving that back tenfold. I mean, I have to imagine that young physicians who show up at the hospital as residents or whatever the case may be, see Dr. Mathani and think, oh my goodness, I mean, look what, you know, your profile and your impact on the community, you're, you're giving back in terms of mentorship and leadership, right? And, and, you know, I, I hope so, but it's all because of the women ahead of me that have paved yeah. that way for me, right? It's like the, it would not have been possible without um, the amazing women around me that are, you know, have been paving the way, who are continuing to pave the way moving up. Uh, and, and the women around me that continue to support me. I mean, it's really challenging sometimes because um, there's this perception, and not even just with women, but we can, I think, apply it to every, everything where there's, um, there's this perception that the, that there's a limited amount of pie to go around in situations, right? And, and, you know, when, when other women are succeeding, um, sometimes, um, there's a perception that if somebody else is, is succeeding, that, <clears throat> that you aren't succeeding or you, you don't have the opportunity to su- succeed, but that couldn't be farther from the truth, right? It's, it's just so great to be surrounded by women who, um, who continue to support you in your failures and in your successes. And, um, I guess I would just encourage every other woman out there to continue to do that for the people around them, but also to surround yourself by that because yeah. it's the only way we're going to keep um, making change. Yeah, making progress on this. We were talking about this yesterday, you know, about what we wanted to talk about uh, with Mac and Brad. And, and I think I think it was Mac that brought it. I can't remember for sure was saying, you know what, I'll guarantee you, even though it's 2023, Dr. Mathani sometimes gets... You know, people don't believe she's a doctor, or maybe even some people have said, I don't want a female doctor. Is that, has that happened to you when you walk into the patient's bay at the ER? You've been treated, you know, discounted, discredited because you're a woman? It has. Um, really? Yeah, it def- Yeah, it has. It, thankfully, it's becoming um, more rare, but it still happens. Uh, you know, there are lots of assumptions um, about, you know, women, women in a hospital, um, that there's no way that they could be physicians. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, the comment that I get all the time, you look so young, there's no way you can be a doctor, which, you know, I, I just try to take that as a compliment, Sure, okay. Um, you know, ra- rather than, um, a slight on my, uh, you know, credibility and expertise, but, um, no, it's still, it's still a challenge. And, and, you know, one thing that I learned early, one of my, you know, I was talking about my female mentors, um, when I was a first year resident, right? So when you become a resident, that's when you have your MD and you can call yourself doctor. I was still going into rooms, introducing myself as Shazma. Hi, I'm Shazma. I'm oh. the resident taking care of you today. And, um, I remember one of my female mentors, she was working with me on shift or I was working with her and she said, you know what, Shaz? Try this for a day and, and, and just see, see how it goes this shift and introduce yourself as Dr. Mathani when you see patients for this shift. And then let's talk about it at the end of the shift and see how it goes. And I mean, she, she was obviously right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it just completely changed the dynamic and it, it changed the, um, the way that the interactions went, um, because it kind of immediately dispels those assumptions that people are making as soon as a young woman walks into the room. Yeah. Um, and that was some of the best advice that I got. Uh, and I continue to now give it to, uh, the young women that are, um, the learners that are working around me. Um, because a lot of, there are a lot of, 
ways that we have to act differently, that we have to carry ourselves differently, that we have to speak differently um, around patients with patients because of all of these um, kind of biases prejudices, and, yeah, and, yeah. and prejudices exactly that are that are um, like unconscious biases, right? Yeah, but they're yeah, there, but they're there, uh, and they certainly affect our interactions. And, and and I think that it's really challenging for um, my male colleagues to ever understand that because it's just something that they haven't faced, and and you know they have that privilege to not yeah. be able to have to navigate things in the same way. Totally. And unfortunately, that's one of the things. I mean. Um, you know, there's a gender pay inequity in medicine yes, yeah. that is extrapolatable to pretty much any profession. And one of the big um, contributors to that is just the way that women tend to have to navigate situations with patient care. It makes it means that, I mean, like we want to spend more time with our patients. Right. But um, we do spend more time with our patients. But then that, you know, contributes to things like being less efficient yeah, and, tough, yeah. um, you know, getting different types of referrals when, when there are physicians working in a community. And so um, it's really a, a thing that's been perpetuated for a long time. Yeah, and, and it's, it's an ongoing thing. Doc, unfortunately, I am right out of time, but we'll do this again. Thank you so much. International Women's Day. We're speaking with some of the women that we have on the show frequently because they're they're just so awesome. And uh, our next guest certainly fits that bill. It's Kelly Keene, um, who is Kelly. You've got a new title. I'm hearing from my producers here. You've you've uh, continued to grow and evolve. What do I need? You are the founder of Money Wise Workplaces now. Congrats. Oh, thanks, Shay. Yeah, very, we're really excited about uh, rolling this out, actually, as we speak to employers and employees across Canada. So thank you, my friend. Tell, tell us a bit about it. What is, what is MoneyWise Workplaces? Is it like a, a mentoring or an education program? What is it? Yeah, so it's an online platform. Right now, we've got 50 video-based modules, so it's a learn-as-you-go for employees, and it's complemented with live events and timely um, monthly workshops, uh, uh, webinars, things of that sort. So, yeah, we really, you know, uh, you know, I've been, it's been my mission for people to feel good about money. Yeah. I've written books, I, I do keynotes, and, but it's, it always stops at that. So this is, this allows us to really get into employees' lives over, a, you know, a year or two year period and really help nudge them to actually make the changes, consume the financial education, but actually change their lives. So, we, you know, we estimate that people that that go through our content will save five to ten thousand dollars in just one year. So we're excited what? about it. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, um, I, this is perfect timing because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the fact I don't know how long I've known you, Kelly. This goes back longer than either of us would like to remember. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> oh um, yeah. But for, I, I've always marveled at how you you're, you're fiercely independent. You've gone. You've done this all on your own. Like lots of people work with companies, and no, this has been Kelly Keene and, and Kelly Keene driven right from day one. Why why did you decide to do that? And how scary was it when you decided I'm going to build this into what it's become now? Oh my gosh, you are so kind. And it's because of people like you, Shay, and so many other media friends, uh, Jalen, Daryl McIntyre, right, that have supported me all along the way. Um, well, I was in the financial industry for 12 years. I got very lucky very early on to be with one of Canada's largest banks. Um, and I saw firsthand, wow. Some people that like you would think were really wealthy would come across my desk and they weren't. They were millions of dollars in debt. <laughs> or I remember, you know, being out. Uh, one of my branches was I had 28 branches all around the city. Actually, one of my wealthiest branches was over in Beverly. And I remember going to one woman's uh, house and she was like renewing 
10 million dollars of GICs and her house couldn't wow. have been worth more than $40,000 or you know some farmer in Leduc and he had 100 million dollars in GICs and I was just like oh my gosh and you know just the long story short was I was raised by a single mom looking after you know my brothers and I to say that money was scarce was an understatement but I was raised by I also witnessed how it really wealthy uncle Shay yeah. so you know we were poor um, but I saw what it was like to have money and the confidence that my uncles had and how they talked about different things. So, uh, yeah, after my 12 years in the financial industry, I was like, you know, my clients are messed up about money. I was messed up about money because it's such a broad topic. It you is. know, even if you have it, it doesn't mean you don't have money problems. So, yeah, 18 years ago, I, I left the financial industry and became an educator writing books and all kinds of different things. So, um, yeah, it's just been my passion, and I stay up at night, honestly. <laughs> like, it keeps me up at night. Like, how do I move the needle with people to pay attention, to do what they need to do, and most importantly, take away the embarrassment and the shame that comes with not having enough money. And, and I mean, I think that's sort of the message that we you always bring whenever we talk is sort of like, hey, listen, it, it, just have the conversation. You can't pretend it away. Right. You can't ignore it. You're going to have to deal with it. So let's get on with it. Um, the world of finance. I was, I was thinking about this yesterday in preparation for speaking with you. And I was thinking about, okay, who have I talked to on TV and radio over the years? And we go and check in on the markets or business. It's always a dude. It's always a dude, Kelly, except right. for you, right? I mean, you're living in a world that I think is still in a lot of ways male dominated. How challenging has that been over the last 18 years? Yeah, I mean, it's changing. I mean, certainly in Toronto, a lot of my portfolio manager friends are women, but uh, it's still changing very slowly. I think the stats are around 30% of those in the financial industry are women, okay. especially when you get to the higher echelon of like portfolio managers, economists. And and then the thing is, Shay, once they do get into the financial industry, they very quickly leave. <laughs> so it uh, doesn't have very good numbers. For supporting Why? women. Is, is it um, the climate? Is it the, just, the, it's not a pleasant place to be or what? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it too is once women get in there, they see that there aren't a lot of women. They see that there isn't support for it. And, and anecdotally, a lot of the women I do know in the industry tend to then, you know, take on a lot of uh, attributes of their, their male colleagues. It, it gets very male. So it is very tough for a woman to get in there. Um, and I mean, it's not as tough as you think. And, and it's, it's very broad too, right? Like if yeah. you're at a bank, it's very different than if you're at an investment house and all that type of stuff. But I think too, just a lot of education, the financial industry needs to do a better job at letting women peek in to see that it's not as aggressive as they think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it hasn't moved much since, since I entered the business 25 years ago. Yeah, and I mean, it's through the work of people like you that it will. Uh, and I know part of, you know, I, like I often joke that I, I'm more of the woman in my relationship because, <laughs> and we, if you take a look at finances, like I, I can, I don't even, I, I wouldn't even know how to pay a bill. Like, I mean, for goodness sake, I, I, I'm so fortunate to have a wife who takes care of all that stuff, but that's not typically how it works, right? And that's part of your work is to try and empower women to be more in charge of the finances, right? I think it's still, yeah. if there's one thing, I mean, there are things that still sort of fall to, you know, the old archaic way of thinking. That's one of them. Household finances, isn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, and there's so many different camps, so we don't want to paint broad strokes, of course, because there's, you know, there's always the the assumption that women are less risky with their investments, for example. But there was this cool UK study over several years. I think it was like twenty three hundred investors where women actually outperformed men by one point eight percent because they actually traded less. They were more thoughtful. So it's not that they're risk adverse, but they just are more thoughtful with their trades. Now, there's other camps of women that I talked to in my last book was kind of specifically for where, you know, my research revealed that 42% of female breadwinners in Canada, these are bread, they're the ones that are earning the income, uh, are still deferring to their spouse on money management. And I'm like, no, like money is like oxygen. It is too important to let anyone else control its supply. So, Regardless if you're the breadwinner or not, if you're the female or not, if you are earning anything because maybe you're at home looking after the kids or your parents or something of that sort, you still need to step up to the table to know what's going on with the family finances. And yeah. I know it's hard. And I know one, you know, one person usually does it. Now, Shay, the person who's doing it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the one that is the breadwinner or has the income. So what does that mean? Well, that means at the end of the month, if there isn't enough money, if there's debt stress, if there's all that kind of thing going on, they also are, are shouldering that all on their own. So it's so important that if you're in a relationship that even, you know, once a month, once a quarter, you come together um, because also if that person dies or divorces you, you're, you're left on your own. So, I mean, uh, like a big one for especially a lot of older women and some men I'm seeing too, like, for example, think they have their own credit card because it has a unique number and it has a unique pin, but actually <laughs> it's a supplementary right. card yeah. on their spouse's account that they opened up 20 years ago and they don't realize they're not building any credit in their name. And, and if that person divorces or leaves them or passes away, you know, they they have nothing. And I hear these horror stories from people. So it's just like little things like that. Like, oh, yeah, maybe you should get a $500 limit credit card and start using it and building credit in your name. Very important. And you've written a book on exactly how to go about doing that, right? Yeah, uh, that, that was the last book, uh, <laughs> Rich Girl, Broke Girl. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and for people that can't afford it, all of my books are, are available at the library for free. Um, yeah. And I mean, everything is there that I want you to know about. So. Excellent. Hey, Kelly, while I've got you, um, Bank Canada rate comes out today. They're holding. I think where everybody's mm-hmm. going to get a chance to catch their breath a little bit here. But, boy, it's been a tough go oh. for the last year. So, I mean, what are you hearing from people and what are you telling people who are just barely managing to hang on right now? Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, uh, my friends over at Lowest Rates, they kind of follow all of this, and their numbers say that if you had a line of credit or a variable mortgage, it's gone up 59%. Since last year, I mean, people were barely hanging on before. So, you know, tough conversations. And I mean, what you need to do if you're a mortgage holder, you've really got to talk to your bank, dig into your um, your mortgage. I know it's not perfect, but let's say skipping a payment, you're allowed to skip one payment per year on your mortgage without penalty. Yes, that means you're going to pay more interest. Mm -hmm. Yes, that means you're going to pay it for longer. But if that one payment helps your family kind of get, you know, a little bit of a breathing room. And I mean, we're hearing all these stats that if interest rates keep going up, people are going to have to sell their house. Please check into everything first before you just apathetically say that you can't afford it. You know, there's always something you can do, maybe extending out your amortization. Again, I know not perfect, but if it gets you through this really tough environment, that's the most important thing because you also don't want to sell at a loss either, right? So. Yeah. 
you know, hard conversation, talk to your bank, talk to your mortgage professional. And if you're in a subprime mortgage, you are in a mortgage that you got from a mortgage broker or someone else, and it's not a big bank. Oh my God, Shay, you have got to be on top of those payments because they can foreclose and do things that the big banks can't. So please, yeah, during times of financial stress, pull those documents out. Maybe it's better to make payment arrangements with your utility company or or free up cash with your credit card company, what have you, and not miss that mortgage payment. So you've got to know in a time of crisis, what payments can you miss? What can you extend out? Where are you vulnerable? Uh, and th- those people aren't going to tell you. You have to do that research on your own. And the thing is, Kelly, and as we said earlier, this is always the message. You, you, you've got to have the conversations. I know you, you don't want to. You'd like to just yeah. ignore it, but that won't fix it. You've actually got to make the calls. You've got to sit down. You've got to say, I need some help here. That's that's step one. Yeah, and you know what? It's usually better than you think. I've, I've talked to so many people through contacting Revenue Canada because they owe money. And they, they get off the call and they're like, wow, they were actually nice. And it's like, generally speaking, generally speaking, nobody wants to come after you and collect because they know their chances are slim. Nobody right. even answers their phone anymore. So <laughs> so if you are actually proactively calling them saying, hey, you need help, what can be done here? You're going to be pleasantly surprised. You're going to get help. And if you don't get the answer you want, call back a second time because you're probably talking to a call center. You know, also like Monday to Friday, call between 9 and 5 Eastern Standard Time. Don't make a call at eight o'clock at night mountain time where you're going to get, yeah. you know, less senior people like call, you know, make the call. And uh, like, it's always going to be better than you remaining silent and just hoping your creditor is going to like, exactly. whatever. well, that's never going to go. Yeah, well. It's not yeah. going to go away. <laughs> exactly. No. no. Kelly, as always, wonderful advice. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Hey, Sarah, you're 23. Have you given any thought to what happens when you die? No, right? 100%. Really? So what do you, what's the plan? What's Cremation. Cremation? Yep. Yeah. Why? I just think graveyards are semi, like, full already, and they're kind of a waste of space, and I don't want to go on the ground. Yeah, perfect. That's, yeah. yeah. It's too cold. It's too cold, man. Being buried alive is kind of a weird fear of mine, too, so I don't want to do that. Well, it's, I mean, I don't know if being burned alive is any better than being buried alive, well, but at I, least it's shorter. No, but it would be quicker. <laughs> no, I'm with you 100%. I'm, I'm all in on cremation, too. Uh, I decided that a while ago. Um, but there's another way. i got to find out what this is. Uh, we'll get to more of your calls. Don't worry. If you, if you want to just hang out there, you're welcome to. I'll try and get to as many of your calls as I can later. But first, I've got I to gotta figure this out. It's called Aquamation. Like cremation, but with water, or liquid at least. I don't know if it's water. I'm not sure. I don't know how it works. I don't know why it's better than another method. So I'm going to find out and get all the details, and so will you. We're going to chat with Krista Ovenel, a BC-based funeral director and the founder of Death's Apprentice and a member of Aquamation BC Coalition. Krista, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Founder of Death's Apprentice? What are we talking about there? Death's Apprentice Education and Planning. I help people think about, talk about, and plan for one of life's only certainties. And <laughs> like your, like your, uh, your co-host there, she, 23, she's like, no, I haven't given that any thought, but she had some pretty 
good ideas yeah. about what she what she wanted, right? So we don't do very well in our culture at talking about this stuff. So I'm so delighted you had me on the radio so we could. No, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're here too. And okay, so we're talking we're gonna talk about aquamation. Now yeah. uh, to me I, I I'm I'm picturing um Walter White and Jesse Pinkman in a barrel of, in a is that what we're talking about here? I mean, what's the process? So we a lot of people will go with that image. Um, a lot of people are very surprised by the way that I phrase uh, cremation. I always say either flame cremation or water cremation okay. because so many people don't even know that there is any other kind of cremation. No, in a in cremation, when we think of cremation, we think of that big fiery chamber, you know, and and, uh, and there's this other much gentler way, which is a water-based cremation. And that's alkaline hydrolysis. You called it aquamation. Sometimes it's called bio-cremation or resumation. This is kind of like the way we would use the word Kleenex for tissue, gotcha. right? So, okay. so, so alkaline hydrolysis is the generic term. And what it is, is it's like, uh, it's like your very last spa day, let's say, okay? So your body would go to, to the cremation, uh, the, the cremation, the crematorium. But instead of a big smokestack, there's a lovely kind of uh, steel tube that you're going to be placed inside. You don't need to be in a casket. You can either be wrapped, uh, or you could, you could conceivably even just be dressed in natural fibers and then just placed inside this chamber. It's filled with water and also an alkaline agent. That's usually potassium. That water is gently swirling around you for a, a few hours. And just like in a flame-based cremation where we use the flame to get us just down to our bones, well, in this case, we use that sort of spa treatment, the water, to rush around us and just get us down to our bones. And there's a few really uh, things that do, that do, in fact, make it better and maybe even more, actually definitely more environmentally sound than flame-based cremation. Okay, so we're, a skeleton is left? Help me to understand. You said it gets us down to our, or is it, what's left at the end of the process? At the end, just like in flame cremation. Okay. When you finish with a flame cremation, what you've got is a bunch of bones. We always call that ashes because we, we grind them up really small. And that's literally what, quote, ashes are. Um, just like in water cremation. Hang on a second. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's yeah. not actual ashes like you clean up no. the fireplace and you get a pile of uh -uh. that. Those ground up bone? Nope. Yep. How did I not All know right. that? How did you? Because we don't think about this or talk about this. And that's why I love you so much for being willing <laughs> to do it. Because we need to know this kind of stuff, right? It's actually pretty important to, to learn about this thing that's just part of life. But we never talk about it, and we never learn about it. So, yay you for helping people learn wow. about it. <laughs> I'm blown away. I, I, I did yeah. not know that. So this would be the exact same process of basically exact reducing us to our skeletons and then grinding up the bone. Grinding it up. And you, you probably will get about 30% more. Uh, it's going to be a bit lighter in weight, and it's going to be a bit whiter. Um, and that's just because it hasn't been carbonized, right? Like, think of charcoal. Um, and instead of the charcoaled bones, you've just got this, like, very kind of clean. It's like it's gone through a yeah, wash yeah. cycle or something. Couple of, can I tell you about a couple of the benefits of this water? Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, because you know, besides just being your final spa day, which is a real uh, appeal to me, um, what happens in a flame-based cremation is you get this byproduct of smoke, right? Yes, yeah. And that goes right up the chimney. But think about it. As we're so lucky in Canada, many of us are, are very old when we die, and we might have uh, metal hips or or impl 
implants in our teeth, um, or we might have even radioactive implant plants that have helped treat cancers or things like that. In a flame-based cremation, all of that, along with the body, that smoke just goes up the smokestack. That's actually not very good for our environment. In the water-based cremation, what happens is the water swirls around, and all of those inorganic materials, they're just left behind. They're actually so clean and so pure that theoretically, now it's not, doesn't actually happen, but theoretically, they could be reused. They're, they're just, they're just set aside and you take bones and grind them up and you leave all that other stuff and the metal can be recycled and the, the, the implants are, are left aside and, and dealt with accordingly instead of just going up the chimney. Okay. So the water is reused? <laughs> The water is uh, is just regular water, like from our municipal taps. Yeah, and then and then we add alkaline hydrolysis. Uh, sorry, we add an alkaline uh, to it, which is usually potassium that swirls around the body for quite a long time, maybe a few hours. Same, it takes actually a few hours in a flame based cremation too. Okay. And then that water, just like there is a byproduct with alkaline hydrolysis, and that's that's water. And so that water, instead of in the, the flame-based cremation where the smoke goes up the chimney, the water simply goes down our municipal treatment system. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, hey, Krista, it's not yeah. just water. I mean, come on here. <laughs> it is, it is. It's actually, it's an enriched water. There is no RNA or DNA at that point. And, um, but, and in some places, this doesn't happen here in Canada, but in some places, you could actually even use that water like for a forest floor. Or things like that because it's like um, it's like enriched by that point. Okay, I, again, I'm I'm defaulting to Breaking Bad, which is wrong, and I get it. <laughs> but that's not water. In <laughs> what's the difference? I mean, it's you've got a body in that water, Krista. Honestly, looks, you do. It, it looks a lot like a sort of a weak tea, and and you know, again, in flame based cremation. What happens is uh, all of that just goes up this chimney and you see it literally coming out like smoke. This is actually kind of even nicer because you don't even see it. It literally just goes down the drain. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. A couple Either other questions. Either way, you have a body in it. The smoke is the, the, the smoke has the body or yeah. the water has the body. You're absolutely it's, right. <laughs> it's, just, it's just what happens. And if you bury someone then you've got the body in the ground. So no matter what, you can't get rid of the body. Matter cannot be created nor destroyed. Gotcha. Right? Yep, absolutely. Okay, <laughs> a couple of things I want to run through. How does yeah. it cost in terms of, you know, cremation being cheapest, burial sure. being most expensive? Where does this fit? Yeah, yeah, um, and that's just not always true, by the way. Um, but it'll, it'll fit very close to a, a, t a typical cremation cost. Um, some firms charge a lot for a basic cremation and many firms are still are charging a, a more reasonable rate so shop around talk to somebody who knows um you're probably going to spend very similar to what you would spend for a cremation but cremation is just disposition so that's not the party afterwards yes. that's not printing those little cards like that's that that's the cost that you, you that you can kind okay. of control right but it'll probably be it's not yet legal in alberta or bc where i am but it is legal in saskatchewan and ontario and Quebec and newfoundland and northwest territories and 24 american states so it's coming okay it's coming for sure and and most places you'll, you'll be literally kind of same average price or maybe 50 dollars more or 50 dollars less okay so it's, it's very similar to cremation costs 
About the same. Okay, uh, I was going to mm-hmm. ask you about legalities. The other one I was wondering is, and I don't know if you know, uh, where do the various religions stand on this? I, a lot of what we do around death is based on religion, right? So where did You're they so weigh right. in on this conversation? You're so right. What a great question. Um, there are a lot of uh, major world religions that, that, that prioritize uh, flame cremation. And for some of those, the you know, there's purification in the flames and things like yeah. that. And so uh, there is no, as far as I'm aware, and I've done a fair bit of research, there's no official sort of statement from the National Buddhist Association or what have you yeah. when it comes to water cremation. But my suspicion is there would probably be a little bit, you know, be regarded with a bit of hmm, kind of factor. Um, I think that the, pe- the people that this most appeals to at the moment are folks, and we have a lot of them in Canada, folks with no really strong uh, religious background um, and folks who are looking for perhaps, a, a, you know, they might have been a bit a bit environmentally focused during their lives and they might want to continue that environmental focus when they die. Um, I know that until very recently, flame-based cremation was something that Catholics would absolutely not contend with. And so, you know, things change over time. And I think because alkaline hydrolysis or aquamation is so new, I think um, eventually it will become a very accepted option. Uh, but for the, for the foreseeable future, it will probably just be something that people need to learn about and, and make, a, make a decision about if it's right for yeah, them. For exactly. me, like I said, spa day, I'm in, you know. Krista, <laughs> yeah. it's been a great conversation. And I'll, I, I'm still hung up on the fact that, the ashes that we get after are cremation no. are actually ground up bone. You have me back anytime, and we'll talk about death on the radio, my friend. We, you know what, <laughs> Krista, we will. I promise you that. Well, we I'm definitely delighted. will. I'm Thank delighted. You. Thanks a million. Bye bye. Thanks so much. That's Krista Ovenel. You know, we like to talk about space occasionally, right? Something that we do here. Um, and we've spent uh, yeah, a few segments over the last few months talking about the moon uh, because there's a lot of interest in getting back to the moon, right? That Artemis mission. Ultimately, the end goal of the Artemis mission, and there's a number of stages or phases to it, will see humans on the moon. There'll be some sort of a lunar base built. But there's all kinds of work that needs to be done before that can happen. Uh, and we've talked to different, you know, how do you build roads up there? How uh, mining to get you know some of the fuel that you need? All these sorts of things. It, it's they're great fun to talk about. Um, and this this is another aspect that sort of fits into all of that. We're going to be talking about the dark side of the moon, which I was surprised to find out. Um, it's more than just an expression for for those of us down here on Earth. One side of the moon is always hidden from view. Always, we've never seen it. At least not from Earth. Um, but Canada may soon play a major role in, in, in shining a light on the dark side, so to speak. So let's let's get into this. We're going to chat with Gordon Osinski, who's the principal investigator for the Canadian Lunar Rover Mission. Gordon, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, so just to get started here, I, I, was, I was surprised. Maybe I'm just uh, really, really dopey, but how does it happen that one side of the moon is always obscured from view? I mean, we're spinning, it's spinning sooner or later... Shouldn't we be able to see the whole thing? Well, not unless something kind of changes out there in the solar system, in the universe, um, because the moon is kind of locked to Earth. And so, yes, it's rotating, but it's rotating you know, around the Earth. 
And so we always see that the side that we're familiar with. And uh, as you say, there is a side that we try to refer to as the far side because it actually isn't dark. Okay. Um, but it's definitely, you know, I think it got the name the dark side because it was mysterious, right? Sure. Uh, we, we glance up at it, but we don't get to see around the, the corner. So do we, do we have no idea? I mean, we've had, of course, you know, different vehicles up around the moon and people on the moon. Have, do we have some understanding at least of what's on the far side of the moon? Yes, we do. From uh, so we've had uh, spacecraft orbit the moon for a number of decades yeah. now, and we have you know essentially complete coverage from satellites of what it looks like. You know, so photographic mosaics that cover the entire moon. Um, it's actually interesting. I mean, it looks quite different. Uh, you know, on the side that faces us, we, people might you know if you glance up next time, look at these big kind of roughly circular dark areas. Um, those are giant impact craters that were filled in by lava early in the moon's history. And so actually, if you look at the, the other side, it looks nothing like that. So there are some interesting differences. Why doesn't it look like that? What does it look like? Uh, it's a million dollar question. Uh, we, you know, <laughs> and scientists like myself are still trying to actually figure out, um, for example, why the moon had more volcanoes and more volcanism on the side uh, facing us. And maybe one way of answering that question is the work that you're involved with, which is a rover that will explore the far side of the moon. And the Canadian Space Agency are heavily involved in this, right? Absolutely, yeah. This is super exciting. This is the our first ever Canadian rover. Um, it's been funded by the Canadian Space Agency and the lead company um, kind of doing most of the building effort is uh, Canadensis, located here in Ontario. And uh, I have the honor of being uh, the principal investigator to this, uh, coordinating the science team and the activities. Um, but it's very much a national Canadian effort with, uh, you know, people from companies and universities almost from coast to coast, including uh, Dr. Chris Hurd from the University of Alberta there in Edmonton. Who we've spoken to before. Um, so when you go to get started on a project like this, I can't imagine the number of different um, you know, things you need to be aware of and boxes you need to check. What, what's, uh, what are some of the challenges that need to be overcome in order to have a vehicle that operates on the surface of the moon? Uh, for sure. It, it is the most, uh, you know, space is challenging, right? Yeah. You, know, you may have talked about building the Canada on to survive in space is a biggest, is a big engineering challenge. And, uh, a lot of listeners might be familiar with the rovers we have on Mars. Um, which, you know, um, are big entities, um, and, you know, we've got a lot of success with rovers on Mars for the last while. Um, but there's an even bigger challenge doing rovers for the moon than there is for Mars, and that's because of the temperature swings. Um, so because of the, that moon's orbit, uh, it essentially has a day um, and a night, but the day is about 14 Earth days, and then it goes into nighttime for about the same time. And just like on Earth, right, Think you know, being out in the prairies, the temperature plummets during the night, and it plummets to almost minus two hundred degrees oh, Celsius. Wow. And so, you know, if I had to pick one challenge, just designing this rover to be able to last the lunar night is definitely one of the biggest. You know, it's going to be one of the biggest engineering challenges of, of all time. Right? It's you know, highly technical, sophisticated instruments and rover that we want to switch on again after, you know, being that cold for 14 days. Um, switch back on. So solar power then. And when it gets really dark like that, you've got an issue. Yep. So, yes, this uh, we're a fairly small rover. So we can't um, we're going to use solar panels to charge. And so 
you know, we'll have a battery. Um, and so it's, you know, we're not going to switch it off because then it probably will never switch on, but it'll essentially go into a hibernation mode. Okay. And, you know, this is where the engineers, right, have to balance that the power, the battery is going to last long enough, and we've just got to warm those critical, you know, bits of uh, the, the rover to keep it uh, going. What's the focus of the mission? Let's say we get the, the, the perfect rover built, and I'm sure you will. It gets up there, it starts doing its job. What is it being called upon to do? Yes, yeah, so we're going to explore um, a part of the moon we've never been to. Um, so we're going to be landing near the South Pole. And that region is interesting for kind of two main regions uh, reasons. Um, the first is that from the satellites in orbit, it's a region that we think there may be water ice. And, you know, we don't know for sure. And so, you know, we've got detections with instruments from orbit, but we want to get on the ground and identify water unequivocally, which will, of course, be frozen in those temperatures. Um, that is, you know, hugely scientifically interesting, but it op- also opens the door for using that water as a resource uh, in situ. You know, we could use it in the future for a rocket fuel, right. for humans to break down the oxygen and to drink. And so that would save us so much money um, in, you know, launching things from uh, Earth to the moon. Um, and then the other big thing is that this is a region of the moon where we think some of the most ancient rocks might be. And so we're going to do some great geology as well, uh, hopefully exploring this part of the moon for, yeah, really the first time. And as I said, this all fits in with the plan of ultimately having some sort of a lunar base, right? And this kind of work needs to be done almost in preparation to, to find out, you know, what we can do in terms of resources and preparation to make that possible. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's not the stated end goal of uh, right. a lot of the space agencies, but a lot of us are hoping that there will become a more permanent presence. It won't be like the Apollo missions that kind of came and went. And absolutely, um, we need to figure out, uh, yeah, what's there. And in particular, if we can find water, that would make a lunar base much more realistic. Because uh, it probably wouldn't be possible if we had to, you know, bring every kilogram of rocket fuel and water and oxygen for the surface of the moon. So we've got to find those resources on the moon to use there. Um, in terms of a timeline, what are we looking at here? When uh, When is this project supposed to be ready to go? We are hoping for 2026. Which, okay. Um, you know, we're 2023 now, right? So three years in the, to design a space mission, get this built and tested and launched is, uh, is quite a short time frame. You know, we're not starting from scratch. We spent the last couple of years putting in place these designs, um, but we're really, you know, things have ramped up, and uh, the big focus right now is is finalizing the designs for all of the instruments and, and the rover. But uh, yeah, hopefully, yeah, three or so years time. Well, Gordon, I wish you the best of luck. And do you mind if we check in every once in a while and see how things are going? Absolutely, I'd love to. You know, this. Yeah, hopefully. A lot of Canadians will be excited about yeah. it, too. We've talked about sending a rover to another world uh, for a long time now, and uh, yeah, it should be exciting. Absolutely it is. Gordon, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.